Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. Join us now as Pastor Keith shares today's message. We're going to jump right in today into the scriptures. And I want you to take your note sheet we provided there in your, your bulletin. I really recommend that you buy a journal. Uh, we, don't, we just give you a place to write down a few things, but you really do better when you capture things that you hear from God's Word when it's being taught and, and how the promptings of God's Spirit as you are being taught and capture those that you can keep. You're going to need more room than just a little page we give you there. And if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're back in Matthew chapter 11. We'll be there one more because there's so much, uh, so much here. And at the beginning of the service, uh, I, I mentioned our, our theme for the day. Some of you uh, got my email and maybe saw the video I did inviting you to come. There's a big question that I find that, that uh, people around Atlanta and certainly here in um, uh, Fayette and Coweta and South Fulton counties, people ask it and been asking it for a long time. And it's this, it, it's sometimes we say it, sometimes it's just deep down in our soul, but it is a problem that people have in coming to faith. And it goes something like this. How can God be a God of you Christians in the church say God's a God of... He's angry. I mean, I studied in 11th grade literature, Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, which is... Sinners in the hands of an angry God. What's this sinners in the hands of an angry God thing? I believe, I believe, that, and I like to think of God as a God of love. And how can, how can you even believe in a God of anger and wrath and judgment that... God can't be loving and God can't be wrathful at the same time. And How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, I think that's a darn good question. It's a really good question. And it's the belief of many, many people who say this just does not make sense. This is an argument that many have against believing in and following Jesus. And maybe you think and feel that way today. And so we're going to take a look at it today. It seems to many that God a God of justice and a God of love cannot be reconciled. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? Is this really the case? Well, our passage today uh, brings this question front and center. Uh, And so let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 11, first book of the New Testament, uh, the 11th chapter, go down to verse 20, and here we go. Then he, Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. 
No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father, the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's Word. Now, let me see your eyes a second. Get us caught up. Here's the, here's the setting, just a reminder. We've been in this, this chapter for the past two Sundays. Jesus is addressing the crowds here. There's a big crowd. He's addressing the crowds. And many in the crowd were unresponsive to Jesus at this point. Uh, his popularity... Um, which had been widespread, now was kind of fading a little bit because there were some who were opposing him and some who uh, did not believe in him. Certainly the religious leaders of the Jews of the days in the crowd had serious doubts about Jesus. They also had doubts about John the Baptist and his teaching, and uh, they uh, they were rejecting both John the Baptist, who was the prophet who preceded Jesus, preparing his way, they were rejecting John the Baptist in his teaching, and they were rejecting um, uh, Jesus and, and, and his teaching. So that's, that's, the, that's the setting. And Jesus, in this passage that we just read, passed judgment on people. He passed judgment on many in the crowd, and yet he offered an invitation to his love and grace. All in these 10 verses, 10 or 11 verses. You see, in this, question, in this passage, we run headlong once again, as we will in many places, into this question that many people have. In, in verses 28 through 30 that, I, that we taught last week, we find Jesus at His uh, most loving, uh, winsome self. Uh, this is the Jesus that many of us want. This is the the one calling all who are weary and burdened down by the the sins and difficulties of life to come to Him for rest, for He is is lowly and humble in heart. And uh, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And they come to Him, they'll find rest for their their souls. Here we find Jesus, the God who is love. God is love. This is the Jesus who we love to talk about. This is the Jesus who heals the sick. This is the Jesus who... Uh, gives sight to the blind and, and restores the hearing to the deaf. This is the Jesus that touched and cleansed the leper. This is Jesus who casts uh, out the demons from uh, people. This is the Jesus who feeds the hungry and cares for the poor. This is the Jesus who dines with the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. This is the Jesus who was very gracious to the Samaritan woman at the well and redeemed the woman caught in adultery. I mean, this is the Jesus who is so approachable that children everywhere he is in a crowd clamor to to draw near to him and he welcomes them uh, before anyone else. This is Jesus, the loving God. I mean, we see him right there in verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, yet just eight verses earlier in the same conversation to the same crowd, the very same people, he is pronouncing judgment. He is pronouncing harsh judgment. Curses. He's pronouncing curses on the people in three towns for their willful unbelief in him in the face of all of the evidence that he has provided that he is in fact the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior, that he is 
the one promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. You'll say, well, wait a minute, Keith, I don't care what you say. I believe God is love. He is, he is love, and He is loving, and He loves all people. Well, look at me. Me too. Me too. Certainly. Uh, I also believe that God is love. I believe that God is love, and I believe that Jesus, being God in the flesh, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, He Himself being God, that Jesus not only is loving, He is love personified. It is His fundamental uh, attribute. Uh, He is love and, and, and loving. I believe that as well. But I have a question for you. Here's one to ponder. Here's one to ponder. Um, Peter Kraft and, and Ron Toselli, the, the uh, theologians, and, theologians and philosophers uh, and faculty members at Boston College, uh, raised this question and they answered it this way. That's a pretty good question. Where, where do we get the notion that God is love? Where do we human beings get the notion that God is love? Where does that come from? Why do we believe in a God of love? Where, where do we get that? What's the basis? Where does that, where does that come from? Well, not, not from philosophy and logic. Uh, no logic can, can uh, account for a fully self-contained, uh, self-satisfied, self-sufficient God choosing to love any of us. It's not logical. It doesn't come from logic. Uh, not from nature and creation. I mean, if we observe nature and creation, it's full of violence. It's full of the survival of the fittest and tooth and claw. We don't learn it from nature. We're not from science. We don't learn it from science. No scientific experiment has ever one time verified, weighed, or measured the love of God. Not from science. We do not learn it there. Not from human conscience. I mean, our human conscience tells us um, that we are we are obligated to do right, whether we want to or not, whether we are or not. It tells us we are obligated to do right. Our conscience never, never tells us that we are loved and forgiven. Not our conscience. Not our conscience. Not, and by the way, not by other religions of the world. I, I would, Pastor Tim Keller uh, once wrote this. He, he said it's often, it's often said, well, well, there are so many world religions and we all know that the, the core of every great world religion, there at the core we find the essence of every world religion, that there is a, there is a God and He is a God of love and understanding and, and therefore we should be loving people. It's, it's widely said, that's at the core of every major world religion and belief. You ever heard that? You ever said that? Sure, you've heard it, you've heard it. Only problem is it's not so. It's not so. We do not learn that God is love from every other world uh, religion. I would encourage you to do your own study of, of Buddhism, of Islam, of Hinduism, any other major religion outside the world of the Christian faith, and you will find that they do not hold to the big point of their faith that there is a God of love as their core belief. They don't. They, don't, they do not. Buddhism, for example... Um, even though having a, a very admirable and great emphasis on selflessness and, um, and service to mankind is one of its highest values, Buddhism has no belief in a personal God at all. Not at all. 
And so, uh, and our Muslim friends, when uh, while affirming that that God is is kind toward us humans, uh, they actually find it offensive when Christians talk about a God who knows us personally and pours out His love on us individually. They find that that very difficult. And so we do not learn that God is love from all the other major world religions. We do not. It's not there. Do your own study. You'll find that that's the case. We learn it from one source. We learn it from the New Testament. We learn it from the actually from the writings of John the Apostle when he's an old man inspired by God the Holy Spirit back over in the little bitty book of 1 John we only find it stated two times. Now it's implied in other places, but it, this, this phrase, God is love, is found in two verses only. In the, and it's found in the New Testament. John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16. We find it right there. God is love. God is love. But now look at me. This is not, while the Bible does say God is love, this is not the complete picture of God, who He is and what He's like as far as the Bible's concerned. The Bible has much more to say about God than just this, these two verses. Much more to say about it. Now, it, because in this passage, just these 10 verses, 10 or 11 verses we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 11, we, we find that He is also a just God, that He is also a judging God, that He is also a righteous God. Uh, here... He's a God of judgment, and here Jesus is issuing a great loving invitation for everyone, all who will, to come to Him for forgiveness and salvation and guidance and amazing grace, and in this very same passage, pronouncing harsh judgment on some people. How do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this? Well, first of all, we reconcile it by admitting that the source for both of those views, there's only one of them. It comes from, it comes from God's Word. The Bible. How, how do we reconcile? How can, a, how can judging people to hell and merciful grace come out of the heart of the same God at the same time? Because we see it right here. We can't deny it. It's right here. How does, it, how does that possibly happen? Well, this passage gives us the answers. And here, here's the first big answer for you. You can jot this down. You, and I, you can reconcile God's justice and God's Love by understanding that God is good. Every preschooler has learned from their prayer, they say before uh, a meal, that God is good. God is great, powerful, all power, and God is good. He is good. His judgment, His justice is rooted in His goodness. Because He is good, He is just. And His love is rooted in His goodness. Because He is good, He is loving. It is rooted in His goodness. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Um, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. Not giving a rip at all. I don't care. That's the opposite of, of love. Any one of you here who's ever tried to love a family member or a close friend who is continuously behaving in ways that are destroying their lives and their relationships, you understand this. You understand this. You understand that with love comes some anger. 
some loving anger uh, toward uh, those because they're destroying their lives. When you have a child who rebels against you and then rebels against Jesus and then rebels against their teachers and then rebels against the principal and then rebels against the police, as we said in Harrelson County, then rebels against the warden, you get pretty angry. Why? Because you don't care about them? No, precisely because you have great love for their well-being. Great, great love. And uh, when you love someone, sometimes there'll be anger and sometimes there'll be correction. Sometimes there'll be judgment because of your love. So in this passage, we learn three things about this and I'm going to get to them really quick. We learn that because God is good, his judgment is a reality. And because God is good, His, uh, his justice has a reason. His justice and ju- judgment has a basis, has a reason. And because God is good, He's provided a loving option, which is repentance. So here we go. Jot this down. We're going to look at these. Because God is good, His judgment is a reality. That's why He is a judging God. Is because He is so good. He is so good. Look at verses 20, 21, and 23. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And you, Capernaum, you will go down to Hades. I mean, he is pronouncing judgment on three towns. These three towns were towns in his home region of Galilee where he had done most of his teaching, where he had done most of his miracles so far, giving much evidence that he was indeed the Messiah, he was indeed the Christ, and yet many, many, many of them were still willfully uh, disbelieving in him, willfully refusing to repent of their sin and place their faith in and believe in Jesus. Now, he uses the word woe to you. We don't use that word very often. We think of a shake a play of Shakespeare, when somebody uses the word woe, we think that uh, something really dramatic is about to be said, but it's a good word. It's a a word that simply means doomed are you, cursed are you. That's what he's saying here. It is, in the Bible, it is covenant language. Covenant language is always a, a language of relationship. When he says cursed are you, he's not saying I'm casting a magic spell on you. You know, that, that's out of fantasy. That's not out of Scripture. Curse means it, it, is, it means the relationship is broken. And because the relationship is broken by one party who did not hold up their end of the deal, they have been lost to that relationship. They have been lost to all of the benefits of that relationship, all of the blessings of that relationship. They have been lost to all of the protections of that uh, relationship. So they're out there on their own. He said, because you have willfully uh, decided not to repent and believe in me in face of all this evidence, woe, you are cursed. You have broken the relationship. You are lost to the blessings and the protection uh, that come in Christ through uh, the gospel. He's, he's saying you're, you're, you're cursed, you're doomed, you're separated, you're condemned in this because you've made these, these choices. Now, once again, it, it is precisely at this point that we human beings tend to get easily offended at the claims of Jesus and say things to ourselves like this, well, I hate the idea of God being a judge standing over me, looking at me all the time, saying, you're wrong here, you have sinned here. You know, remember the guy in The Great Gatsby? 
and the big eyes on the sign. He always thought that the eyes of God are looking at me. Well, they were. Now, those weren't God's eyes, but God's eyes are always looking. He is always looking at us. We say, I hate this. I like to think of a God as a God of love. I've already told you that. Yes, you, we do like to think of God as a God of love. But we do not have the option of thinking of God as a God of love only. Because remember, the source of our belief that God is love is the very same source that says He is also a God of wrath and anger toward sin and evil. One who has and does and will judge sin and evil and He is going to set all things right. His justice is a reality. His justice is a reality. He says, well, I don't believe in that. Well, you can not believe in gravity too, but it's there. And it's, he just said, this is here. You can believe in it or not, but it doesn't change the reality. His judgment is a reality, and we have to deal with it. But, it and, but also because he is good, his justice has a reason, and a darn good reason. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says to Capernaum, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll go down to Hades. He said, no, in your current condition, you will, go, you will bust hell wide open, is basically what he's saying there. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. He's saying his justice is justified. So what do you mean his justice, his judgment is justified, Pastor? Well, look at verse 20 and underline this phrase in your Bibles. He tells us that he passed this harsh judgment on the majority, on the, the, the majority of the people in these three towns because they did not repent. He said, here's why. There's a why. There's a reason. Because he did not repent. So evidently there was something that to repent of. There was something that needed repenting of. And evidently there is someone who needs to be repented to here. Jesus believed and states so in Scripture that we are responsible to someone and we are responsible for some moral standard outside of and above our own hearts and minds. You say, well, Pastor, you might be saying, Pastor, no one has the right to, to judge me in my own heart. The heart wants what it wants and who are you or anyone else to say that I'm wrong? Now that tends to shut down our conversation sometimes, but... It's there. Only I can determine what's right and wrong for me. Now, that is the prevailing thought and value of our world and our culture today. That's the prevailing. Right? Honestly, inside those who claim themselves to be Christians in our Western culture and those who don't. No, who, you can't, who can say? Nobody can say. You can't judge my heart. My heart, you know, I get to decide that. And... Um, you and I are the fish that swim in that ocean of thought. You know, fish are the last ones to discover water. You, you do know that, don't you? And and we've been we've been living. I was. This has been going on for since the Enlightenment, and um, so it, it, we didn't just start thinking this way ten years ago. You and I have been born and raised in this world thought and value system that says nobody else can tell me what's right and wrong for me. You can't judge my heart. Who are you to say that? But Jesus says, oh, I, oh, me? Oh, me. Yeah, I, I'm him. I can. He says, oh, I have that right. That's what he's saying here. 
He says, I have that right. And this is why we get so angry with Jesus and his Jesus is so offensive. He's offensive to us. He said, oh, I have that right. I have that right because I created a transcendent moral standard of right and wrong, good and bad, holy and sinful. It is outside of you and it is above and beyond you and your own heart. Now, most of us humans... I don't believe that. Well, let's talk about that a second. Most of us humans actually do believe that some things are just wrong regardless of what our hearts tell us, don't we? Just think, maybe down in there, but we, we might not think everything, but we, we, all, we think that there are some things that are just wrong for everybody regardless of what people's hearts tell us. And we believe they're wrong for everybody. We really do because we get offended when someone violates that internal standard that we have. That means we think they should have our heart says it's wrong and you should too. See, we, we've got this standard in there for us. And um, uh, we believe it. This, this may just be a vague uh, feeling below the surface of your mind and heart. In fact, you might not have even been aware of it until you're thinking about it right now. But it's there. It is there. Scriptures say we have the ability to suppress it so that we're unaware of it. We fool ourselves. We lie to ourselves. All of us can do this and have done it at some point in our lives. But we know deep down there is a moral law. Now we may, and, we, and we also know that we are, you and I are not living up to it all the time. There's this standard, this moral law. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Read that. Read that. And so Jesus says... I set that law. I set that moral standard. I created that. Now, there are those who say to sometimes, well, I just put aside all that other stuff in the Bible. I just read the red. You ever heard that? I just read the red. I just read the red. I just read the words of Jesus, and I live by the words of Jesus, and that's good enough. And I always want to say, ha, huh, there's one thing, that, if that's what you're holding to, there's one thing I know for certain. You really haven't read them. Because good grief. Let's just go to the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, have you really read what Jesus said His standards are? If you really really read it and you believe that you are to keep it, live up to it, you're going to throw up your hands in despair. Because who's up for this? He set the moral bar higher than any moral teacher at any philosophy or any world religion in the history of the world. And it is still the highest. I mean, why, it is widely thought in most cultures that it is sinful to, to murder. Now, we, we found anthropolo- social, social anthropologists have discovered that not every culture believes that, but most of them do. Thou shalt not murder. And so I got that. And, you know, the way we said it back in the, where I grew up in Harrison County, they said, oh, I'm okay, Keith. I never killed nobody. And, uh, you know, we say that. But Jesus said, oh, no, no, you say thou shalt not kill. But I think if you're angry in your heart toward your brother, you get credit for murder. You know, that's not just nice poetic language. He actually meant that. You bunch of murderers. You got credit. I got credit. I mean, have you really read the words of Jesus here in His moral standard? Just look at, the, just look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody can live up to that. No one can live up. 
uh, to that. The Bible, the only authoritative source that teaches us that God is love, it's the source of that teaching, also teaches that Jesus created you and me and He put us in charge of managing His world and He holds us accountable for what He what we are to do and what we do with what He gave us. There is a standard of morality that is higher than the choices of my heart and of your heart, and you know it, and I know it, and we know we're not living up to it. And the Bible says, just like any owner will come to a manager, he's going to come to us one day and we're going to be audited as to how we did with what He charged us and what we are to do. He will audit, He's going to audit us. And we're going to, He's going to find that we didn't manage everything right, and He's going to call for an accounting. Somebody's going to pay. Now, either you're going to pay or I'm going to pay, or, or Jesus is going to pay. We get to choose, because, but because God is good, He will not tolerate evil. He will not tolerate evil. He will, and, and we want justice, don't we? When we see evil taking place, we want somebody, to, we want justice to be served, don't we? Well, sure we do. Where'd that come from? It came from God Himself. And we would, no jurist in our culture today who just consistently refused to sentence people who have been convicted of a crime, would we admire those judges? Well, uh, no, that's laughable. Terrible. No, no, no. We, we want a God who is just. He's going to settle the score, make things right. His justice is a reality and His justice has a reason because His moral law has been, has been broken. But because He is good, it's reality. Because He's good, He has a reason. Because He's good, He's given us a, an option, a loving option, and it is repentance. Let's talk about this just a second. So why did Jesus judge Horazan and Bethsaida and Capernaum? He judged them because they would not repent. But then he says in verse 28, where we were last week, Come to me, all you who are uh, weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn of me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now look over here at the cross. The cross of Jesus, many say the cross is a, great sim, is a symbol of great love. Yes, it is. But it's more than that. It's also a symbol of God's perfect justice and judgment on evil. For in the cross of Jesus, God best expressed to you and me His goodness in His judging evil and loving people. He did it all on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. See, on the cross, the justice and the judgment of God on sin and the love of God for mankind combined in perfection and harmony. It all combined right there. Because of sin, God passed judgment on human beings, the sins of humans. And because He's morally good, He's morally perfect, in Him is no darkness at all. The Bible says He will not and cannot look upon sin. In Him is light and there's no darkness at all. Evil must be punished punished, and justice will be served. And because of God's love, then He passed, after He passed judgment, He stepped down from the judgment seat and judged Himself and took the punishment. 
the judge was judged by his own judgment voluntarily. He paid the penalty because he loved the sinners. He loved those convicted of the, the crime. And uh, he paid the penalty himself. He demonstrated, it's what the Bible means when it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. See, on the cross, God's judgment on evil and his great love for humanity was com- intersected in perfect harmony. He has provided for you an option. He has provided for me an option, and it is repentance. See, in verse 28, that little invitation, come to me, it's a call to repentance. Come to me. It means taking a change of direction from, watch this, our egotism, our pride, our self-sufficiency, and our self-reliance. It says, well, God's okay. I don't need Him. I'm okay. Refusing to believe. It is repentance is taking a turn from that stance and turning uh, to trust and believe in Jesus. So, well, Pastor, what's a what's repentance look like? Let me describe it this way. I came across this description first of all in some writings by Tim Keller. We tend to think of repentance as a point in time or kind of a lightning bolt. Bzzz, repent, and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn. But that's not really the way it works. Repentance is a process. And you may be in this, in, in this, somewhere in this journey of repentance today. Let me describe it a little bit. First of all, repentance, um, if, if a person is in the process of repenting, you may find yourself beginning to question your belief system in your way of life. You, you, this thing you've been counting on to cleanse and beautify and prove your life whatever this person or thing is or value, you, you begin to question that a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong. Call it your life plan. Maybe my, my life plan isn't working out for me. And you begin to evaluate it. You say, you know, I'm not ready to buy into all this stuff about Jesus. I'm in Christianity yet. I, I, you know, I don't really like Christians. I don't like that pastor. I don't like the preacher. I don't like the church, but I'm here. I, but... Uh, it looks like what I have believing in, have been believing in, and how I'm living isn't working. What I'm living for might be the wrong thing. I've been living for professional status. You know, that might be the wrong thing. I've been living for uh, physical attractiveness. That might be the wrong thing. I've been living for material comfort. That might be the wrong thing. It's not working out. That, that's all a part. That's the beginnings of repentance, of turning. Second, a repentant person gets a little closer and then they say, well, while not leaving this yet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back maybe again and examine the claims of Jesus. I'm going to look a little closer. I'm going to be a little more serious about it. I'm not just, just going to blow it off like I did because my gr- mama wanted me to do this when I was in high school. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at it and um, because I've got this sense of condemnation on me. I'm beginning to be aware of this sense of, of condemnation and error that the thing that I've been pursuing is not doing it for me. I'm, I'm questioning this. So you begin to study on your own. And you begin to attend worship services like this one and just kind of sit back in the crowd. And our church exists, Dogwood Church exists for people to come and sit back in the crowd and, and process and begin to listen to these 
things, so you're in a good, good place, uh, you begin to ponder and evaluate. You begin to think critically about all these things for the very first time, maybe, or seriously for the first time. And then you begin to develop a conscious sense of judgment on yourself so that you're uncomfortable. You realize, I- I'm, I'm guilty. I-, I really am guilty. What my professor said in psych class in college is not true. That guilt is just a wasted emotion. It's just a social construct. They, they call it, you know, Catholic guilt or Protestant guilt or Christian guilt. It's the, it's, forget all that stuff. And you realize, no, 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 no. There was something bigger. It, this, was not, this didn't come from society. I have, I'm, I'm guilty of violating some standard. I know I violated my own. It's looking like I might have violated God's. And we begin to get a sense of judgment. And then we begin to see what Jesus says here in the third step. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with this. And I'll give you rest. I took care of it already. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Give, remember what we said last week? The yoke. Give up control the direction in what you've been pursuing and the pace of your life and take my yoke and begin to follow me and trust in me and what I accomplished when I died on the cross and rose from the dead for you and I will give you rest. Maybe you're somewhere in that journey. Pray with me. Let's pray. If you are, just ask Him. For some of you, you're just beginning to sense Maybe what I've, my life plan, what I've been living for has been the wrong thing. Well, then commit to continue on the journey of repentance. Tell Him. Lord, I don't even know if I believe in You. I know I don't, there's a bunch of Christian things I don't like, but I'm not sure what I'm doing is right. Maybe you are ready to start examining the claims of Christ seriously. Well, tell Him, Lord, I'm okay, I'm on an honest journey. I'll begin to study, I'll begin to listen, I'll begin to pursue you. If you're there, show yourself to me. But some of you may be ready to make the turn and answer his invitation, come to me. So come. Trust in the perfection of God's judgment on sin and the outpouring of his love that he accomplished when he died on the cross. In your place, because of your sin, in your place as your substitute. Ask Him, I I believe it, I trust you, you be my substitute. I'm giving myself to you. You tell Him. Now, if you've made a significant spiritual commitment, let me know by checking the appropriate statement on your communication card on the backside or writing a note to us. and We will respond with prayers, the offer of of private conversations for spiritual coaching about next steps, and also send some materials in the mail to you to help you on this journey. You be sure to do that. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a good God. You are great, all-powerful, 
And you are good, absolutely good, and you is no darkness at all. And in your goodness, you will serve justice. And you will pour out your love on repentant sinners like me. Blotting out our transgression in your record book. Washing us from our iniquity. Cleansing us from our sin. Restoring our relationship with you. And joy for living in this life and the next because of this easy yoke and light burden. Thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword Dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and more.